Hi everyone. Yes, it's your girl, the tea teacher. And today I have read the book of Love and Honor, the life of Reverend Julius Cheeks, as told by his daughter, Judy Cheeks. Y'all, I know I say that every book that I have read is the most amazing books, and it is. This book right here really hits home. Um, it's an, it's an amazing book, a wonderful book that you need to read yourself. Believe me, go out, get it right now. Stop what you're doing. Order it. Go on Amazon. Go to your bookstores, wherever you need to do to get this book. Let me tell you the title of it again. It's called Love and Honor, The Life of Reverend Julius Cheeks, as told by his daughter, Judy Cheeks. Y'all. Get comfortable getting your seats, get your cozy, comfy blanket on, get your tea, and let's get into it. Okay, people, let me tell you, this is something that it is amazing. It is amazing. You never would have thought that this book or any book can touch you the way that it did at all, at all. Never, 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 never. And before I get into the book, this book, cons it tells you how it was as we, our parents and our grandparents and grandparents know about picking cotton, how it was being a sharecropper and how it was, you know, back in those days, families had a lot of children to help out with the farm. Picking cotton was not easy. Shucking corn was not easy. Being a sharecropper was not easy, easy but you had to do it tired, you're dirty, you stink, you got to come and take a bath. They didn't have baths like we have today. They didn't have sinks like we have today or stoves like we had today. They didn't have things like that back then. And when I say they, I mean the blacks. They didn't have that back at that time. That They didn't give that to us. That wasn't our luxury. The luxury back there is hopefully they made enough during the sharecropping that they would have enough money to eat. Everybody had to take baths in the same um, basin type of metal pot bin thing. And and if you had a lot of kids and back in those days, if you didn't take your bath right then and there, that water be dirty and stinking and hope to God that at least I have some soap that, you know, your mama made you or the case may be. So this right here, it, it it got me because Judy was telling everybody in her book how her dad was to her, who he was to her. Right down from the way he looked, the way he smelled, the cologne, the must of his cigarettes. And she said he liked smoking Winston cigarettes. And she said that cigarette smoke that she could not stand. And she still can't stand. But when her daddy smoked them, she would stand the test of time with that. Because why? That was her dad. That was the man of her dreams, her daddy. So you can you can tell that she was the daddy's girl. And let me tell you, there's a lot of daddy girls out here. Um, my daughter, she is a daddy's girl. She loves her dad. And, and that's a good thing to know that. So she says that her daddy grew up 
in Jonesville, South Carolina. He was born August the 7th, 1929. That was then the year of the Great Depression. And times, like I said, was hard for most of them, for everyone, (laughs) especially if you had big kids. And her dad was one of 13 children. Her, his parents was Mosan and Martha, and they were sharecroppers. They'd worked very hard, very hard. And I know we've heard our grandparents say they worked they fingers to the bone, and they did. It was hard working. It was tiring, picking cotton all day long, just enough to make money just to have something to eat. And I remember my mother telling me that my grandmother and my aunts and uncles, cotton flowers have uh, pricks on the flowers. And so when you go down to pick the cotton out, it will stick your cuticles and make your hands bleed and scar your fingers all up. So you know that's what they did. It was scarring their fingers up. They probably didn't have gloves back then because black folks couldn't afford things like that. So he worked his fingers to the bone and his parents did did too. But what gave them comfort was singing. All of them sung from the oldest to the youngest. Every one of them. And they said that his mom had a voice that was so powerful and so soulful. She'll send shivers down your spine with just a moan. Boy, that must have been a powerful voice to do that. She also said, her dad told her when his mom sung you just had to stand still and she melted your heart that's what her uncle Hank says so that's what they had to do they had to get together they had to be a family they had to pull it all together to make it work but see because you can't have one or two people doing sharecropping when everybody else is lacking so they everybody had and knew their position and knew what to do Mosan was also a great singer, they said, but he will only sing if the spirit moved him. When the spirit moved him, it seemed to move the earth. There was talks of how he would rattle the church doors whenever he sang, following fellowship, fellowshippers into a spiritual frenzy. That man, they said he sung so well that the whole church, the saints was shaken. The saints were shouting because he brought the spirit of the Lord in the church. That's a powerful voice. So like I said, when they went to go pick cotton and do the fields, they sung. That's what got them through that. From the youngest to the oldest, considering considered valuable contribute to the farm and the family's survival. And they all had to pull their weight. So you couldn't have six of them and the rest of them wasn't pulling their weight. Not at all. And then, you know, back in those days, the blacks lived in the South pit cotton. And that's all they looked forward to. Back then, the family struggled to put food on the table and purchase the bare necessities. Her dad said the children wore hand-me-down clothes, which his mom stitched and patched up relentlessly. They often went without shoes. The money they earned was just enough to buy seed for the crops and continue the cycle. Always just enough to keep them on the level they were on. According, 
I mean, everything and anything beyond that experience was almost silly. So they never, they really didn't even have anything. But they made sure they had each other. They made sure that that's family was most important. Most important. And it seemed like the men on the plantation that they worked for, or the men that her dad and mom and the families worked for, seemed to take pleasure in announcing that Mosaic's and Martha's family was always short once again on harvest. Now, we all know back in those days they lied, so they might have not and probably not have been short. They did what they had to do. And he probably just lied and said, hey, y'all, y'all being short, y'all gonna have to, um, next time, go a little bit fast. I want to see more. Not understanding, hey, they have a little compassion. But it was easier for them to believe that God would relieve them from their suffering. And they will receive their reward in heaven. So the great song that they sung in, this, in, in the book was, Some great morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To a land far beyond the shores, I'll fly away. Easy for some. Hey, that, that's all they had to depend on was the dreams and the hopes of one day they will get from out. One day that they will make it big and leave. One day that they wouldn't have to do that no more. Some people make it out of those one days, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't at all. And, you know, her dad said that his dad, Mose, was just, Mosean was just a quiet, native, very rarely, rarely ever spoke at all. It was just him looking at you and you know and you knew what he was saying, when he was saying it, how he was saying it, and you knew you better get it done without even opening his mouth. He had that type of look that his children knew. Hey, daddy's saying this. We better be her. We better get on. Now, Martha, even though she was stern and strict and she the one that did the disciplinary in the family and she would tear your hide up quickly but the hand that whooped her children was the hand that also comforted them when they was hurt or stressed out but still daddy their dad Mosan show them the way show them how to fish and hunt and Show them how to listen and to learn and observe without opening their mouth. Because sometimes in life, you have to be quiet. You have to sit still and just look. Listen before you speak. Because sometimes as people, we speak too quickly before we know what we're talking about. And that's how he was. He was quiet, but he was determined to teach his children who and what they are and to never forget where they come from. And never forget who they are. And he was always, always hardworking. Mosean was very hardworking. But let me tell you, as children, they tended to they tended to wander off sometimes. And that's what Julius did. He was tired of picking cotton. 
he was tired of sharecropping. He was literally tired and he started to not want to come home after school. And they said that sometimes that his mama had to go down and get him, whoop him all the way home. And I bet you that was embarrassing. <laughs> him getting whooped all the way home. Or he'll, she'll send the older siblings to go get him. Or sometimes she'll just like forget it. You know, she was she had more other things to do. She couldn't just worry about him. She had other kids that she had to worry about. To not stress out about him. But boy, I'm going to tell you, when he got home, she got a hold of him. And he was so exhausted from working so hard and so long and so late that he would fall asleep in school. He struggled to stay awake in school. He hated everything about school. Ah, he hated his journey to school. So I'm going to read a quote that her father said, and it really hurted me. He said every morning, quote, I walked to school with my bare feet and raggedy clothes trying his best to ignore the taunts and abuse I received from the white children who rolled past me on the school bus. They shout out, hey nigger, look at you. Where you think you going? Get in here and shine my shoes, boy. Now we all know that we do not like being called that word boy and we sure don't like being called that word nigger, but this is what they had to face back in those days. Some of them would even spit on me. Woo! Lord, take the wheel. Spitting? Now, uh-uh. Now, look. You can call me what you want to, but don't you, don't you get to spitting on me. He could not retaliate. Nor could he defend himself. This was no. This was one of the first lessons you learned being black in the South. Retaliation meant more trouble. It would have been the last thing the family needed. He knew that he could grab any of those white boys off the bus and whip the daylights out of them, but that was not an option. He just had to take it, end quote. Now, we all know by fighting and, and what's the favorite word? You better not call me out my name. And you know what the parents should say. Oh, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words may never hurt. But sometimes words do hurt. I'm struggling. I know my family don't have this. My family don't have that. And I got to go to school with no shoes and have clothes and clothes raggedy and hand-me-downs. And I'm hated because the color of my skin, but don't make it worse. Don't tear down my self-esteem any lower. See, I had parents and uncles and aunts that was born in that era. I had parents and uncles and aunts that my grandparents were sharecroppers and they had to do cotton and they had to do corn and they had to do all that. So I understand where he's coming from because I remember my parents and my grandmother telling me about their experiences. But one day, he didn't come home. He wanted to mingle and he wanted to look around and, you know, just think. But he said the whites had the power which enabled them to not only dream of their future, but to plan one. Mozan came back and said he had to create his own power and figure out his own escape. His mom had instructed him to 
always come straight home from school to do his chores, no doubt. But that day, on that very day, he wasn't coming home. Not right then and there. And it didn't matter if he got a whooping when he got home or not. He wanted to explore. He didn't want to do no chores. He didn't want to do any of that. He wanted to go where he wanted to go, and he did. And he did. So what did he do? He went down there with the hobos. It was a pond that he always wanted to, he want, he always went to and threw rocks to see how far they'll skip. Now I've done that a lot too, you know, and waters and skip your rocks and see how many times they jump. Then from there, he would wander on over there to uh, a neighboring farm and listen to their music and their stories. And then from there, he'll go on to the hobos and hear what their stories and what they went to went through. See, because everybody, because he was black, you went through it naturally. But there were some white people that went through it. Because why? The greed, the drugs. Sometimes they just had to leave their families and couldn't help it but become who they were. As you see, they was called the Hooterbills. I know, right? The Hooterbills. And they told him about the Dust Bowl in the Midwest and how they had to escape and the economy ruined of others who had enjoyed demolishing and high paying jobs. Her dad saw poverty as a great equalizer of men their white skin and other high re- highly regarded credentials served no purpose in the Hooterbills. Everyone was running from disaster and yearning for hope. At least, she said, her dad had a roof over his head and was not separated from his family. These men were forced to leave their loved ones behind as they desperately searched for work. They had lost everything they owned and lived in the shelters made from packing crates, abandoned cars, or any other cast off shacks they could find. The Hooterbills, they called them. They left to go find work and couldn't. And they probably was too ashamed to go back and tell their wives with their children that they couldn't find work, knowing that their children were starving and sometimes Some of them probably died of starvation or the wife didn't really care about them or was was stressing too bad and she found someone else. And when they got back there, they knew that probably another man would be with their wives and family. So they did what they did and they stayed there and they lived in the slums. They lived in Hootersville as being a hobo. So that day he knew when he got home, he knew that he was going to be in trouble. And all the rest of the siblings was cracking up and laughing while his mother, Martha, was on the front porch shucking peas. The daddy came up walking and quiet as he can be and, and everything. And the kids was rolling around and laughing and stuff. And so his dad, her dad came walking up and the mom said, well, you passed that bush. How come you didn't give me a switch? After a while, he went on to the tub to take a bath because that's what his mom told him to. The mom came around there and you know how us mothers are. 
How come you didn't do this? Why come you didn't do that? How come you didn't do this? <laughs> she went over there to him and she put her hands upon her hip and head to the side. She asked him so a few questions. He said, I've seen grown white men who worked all their lives for a good living and only to have it disappeared almost overnight. What kind of chance do we as black people have picking cotton? His mother put his, her hand on her hip and tilted her head to the side and beady eyes and said, you have been down there with those shady cars again, aren't, haven't you? Yes, mama. Mr. Spencer, Spencer, the manager, has offered me a job as their water boy. The daddy comes over there and asks him a few questions to him. He told him, he said, they told me all about the Dust Bowl. This is what he's saying to his father. The Dust Bowl and the dust storms and how hard it was for them. I felt sorry for them, he said. I learned don't, no matter how hard you work, you can just lose it all just like that. So what's the point? His dad Quote says, then you aren't no better off than them, he said, unquote. See, because those white folks, those white men, those hobos and haters and ho- Hootersville could have went back to their families and all oh, back to the town their family was in and could have made it and could have cleared up and could have made big time businesses and everything else. But as being black, where could have they have gone? That taught me right then and there to never, 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 never be ashamed of who you are or where you come from. Never be ashamed of what you have to do in life, picking cotton back then to stacking groceries now. I want to thank you so much, Miss Judy Cheeks, for allowing me to read your book. Y'all, go and get this amazing book. It is amazing and it's heartwarming and it will touch the very deep soul of your inner being. Your inner, inner, inner being. Believe me. Love and honor. I have so much respect for Reverend Julius Cheeks because he did what he had to do. And to his father and his mother with all those children, they never complained. They did their job and they kept it going. Why? Because they did it together as a family. But before I leave on this though, also everyone, sometimes we might not have the things that we want in life and sometimes we might have the things that we want in life. But just because you might have the things that you think is so high and mighty and rich and and never can be brought down or you never can lose it, those are things that you can lose the fastest and the quickest. But never forget where you come from because where you come from is the very place that has helped you to get where you are today. Thank you.